Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Thank you, Kayla. Thank you. Thank you. We are talking about the Word of God uh, in this season, and um, I just want to point out, we said this last week, I'm going to say it every week, this is, uh, this is a Bible. Uh, we have these Bibles here, and there are uh, dozens upon dozens sitting at our info center, and so if at the end of service today, if you want to walk out, whether you need a Bible, uh, you have a friend you might want to gift one to, or uh, for any other reason you might imagine, these are here. They are free for you through generous donation from one of our members, and uh, we just want to make sure that that's always accessible to you. And then what I will, when I remind you at the end of the service, what do I do if this is my first time opening the Bible? What if I do if I'm not familiar with the Bible? Open it up to the book of John and just start reading, and we'll take it from there. So if that's there for you, uh, don't forget, if you need a Bible, we got one. Uh, today, we do continue with our Word of God series, and uh, last week, one of our elders, Ken Jenkins, asked the question, what is the Bible? And, and kind of ex- expertly unpacked uh, the bits and pieces of what is this thing that uh, seems in the next few weeks we're going to ask, is it historically credible? Is it, is it really divinely inspired? Is it really for me or applicable to my life? Um, as we unpack those things, the foundational part of what is the Bible matters. And so if you missed that, you can always go back on our website. You can watch or listen and catch up that way. Today we are asking the question, is the Bible historically credible? And if that's a good question, then why does that question even matter? It's going to have to do both things. Is it historically credible? And then why would that matter if it is or isn't? Um, I think it matters. I'm a history nerd. I have a history degree, and um, I think the past matters. I would say that the past explains the present and often foretells the future. At the very worst, the past explains the present and informs the future. You've maybe heard uh, that we may be going into a recession. Maybe you've heard that. Oh, recession is coming. There's going to be a recession, recession. What does a recession uh, mean in financial markets? Financial markets go down. Certain stocks go down more than others, like cruise ship stocks go down more, and fast food stocks tend to stabilize or go up. Discount stores, Dollar General, their stock will go up in recession. Why? Well, because people have less discretionary income, and so they end up not spending it on things like cruises, and they end up spending it at discount stores because people have fewer jobs and less money, and that's what happens. How do we know that? Well, history tells us that, right? Historically, when there is recession, these certain things will happen. And so history, in a sense, informs the present day you're in, and it it starts to inform the future a little bit. You can make educated guesses on what's happening based on what has already happened. I think... um, it's interesting. We, we would call it credible experience. You have credible experience with something, and it ends, up, it ends up informing your expectations about what's about to happen. So if I said, this is heavy. Um, if I said, this is metal, like, this is metal, what sound does it make when metal hits a hard floor? Will it be jarring? Will it be slightly traumatizing? Will you hope that it doesn't actually get dropped because I don't want to see the big metal thing hit the floor. Why do you have that feeling? Why wouldn't it just float gently to the ground? Historically, you have historical credible evidence from your life that heavy metal things falling onto floors will create jarring, slightly unnerving, loud noises, right? I'm just kidding. You thought I was going to, but then... 
Sorry, I didn't. It's a total accident. Why did it make that noise? Because that's the noise it makes, right? That was the noise you expected. Now, let's go to the next place. I'm going to take this boiling hot cup of coffee. Um, what was the point of that? Your past experiences, your past credible experiences, shape your present and inform your future. You knew somewhere in you the noise that would make. And you knew that because you had a lived experience that was credible. And so as we go through this, we're going to kind of, I kind of want to make the, the case that it matters that the Bible is historically credible. So let's do one other thing. So I've told you before, my family eats tamales for Christmas. We have tamales. We went home Christmas Eve. There was a flooded church. We went home, and it didn't matter for anything because my kids were thrilled because tamales were ready. We were ready to go. And that's what we had on Christmas Eve. It's what we have every year. Why does a random, very white family in present-day Ohio living in a frozen black swamp eat Mexican food on Christmas Eve? Why? I bet it has something to do with history, right? So let's look at my history. I'm from Czech and Polish ancestry on my mother's side. So in the 1800s, thousands of mostly poor Czech people moved to America to escape the Austrian Empire, and then um, they came for cheap land to farm in Texas. So throw that Texas slide up there. So what happened is all these Czech people from Europe were trying to escape the Austrian Empire, and they ended up <laughs> there. And that's like kind of blurry. But that's where they went. Why? Because that prairie was really cheap, farmable land. And so all these people made all these little uh, colonies, basically, of European people living in Texas. Then what happens is uh, Texas was, at one point, Mexican. It was owned by Mexico. It was part of Mexico. And then in 1836, becomes liberated and becomes its own country and then becomes part of the United States. And on and on it goes. Some of the people from those Czech settlements moved to the city, as people tend to do. We're looking for opportunity. We moved from the country into the city. What city did they move to? They moved to San Antonio, which used to be Spanish and then became Mexican and then became Texan. And so this Spanish city with these Czech people, those Czech people, they, the cultures kind of melded together, and these Czech people started eating Spanish food and Mexican food for Christmas. History is playing a role. And so as a result of 150 years ago, some people showing up into a random place on a random map, my family, has Mexican food. Now, that's present from history. How does that inform the future? My children, all they want for Christmas, I've done a leg of lamb, I've done all the things, and they're like, can we just have tamales? Can we just have like the poor Mexican street food? That's what they want. So I have a guess that my grandchildren are going to eat tamales on Christmas because my children eat tamales on Christmas, and because my children eat them, my grandchildren who don't exist yet will as well, and they're going to go, why do we eat this? And we're going to have to do the whole lesson again because the history matters and a historical, credible historical experience tends to matter over time. Okay. Something as meaningless as food to something as meaningful as eternity, as your deepest held beliefs, this is, this is where we're going today, is we have to hold history and credible historical experience as something that deeply matters if we're going to apply it to something that matters as much as our faith. If the Bible is historically credible, it will shape everything. The meaning of life and existence, the way you live, your identity, and your eternity. If the Bible is historically credible, that's an if, you're welcome to say it's not. I think it is, but you're welcome to say it's not. If it is, it should change everything about the way you live. There's a headwind in our culture. It's a challenge for us. There's a headwind. You live in a postmodern world. 
What does that mean? That means everything is relative. There is different versions of truth. Your truth, my truth, infinite versions of truth. People say, live your truth. And even history is then dismissed. History is dismissed. Why? Because history is biased by the teller, it's told, or history is the story of the victor. We are told that the person who was persecuted or oppressed or who lost doesn't tell history because they're no longer here. So we're even told, don't really trust history. Let's rewrite some histories because history doesn't really, I don't know if we can trust that. Like, like let's take um, a current event and let's apply this filter. I don't know if you guys know, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, right? Okay. Why? Who's at fault? And what's the point? So, ask Zelensky from Ukraine and ask Putin from Russia to explain why Russia is currently invading, occupying, warring with Ukraine. I think you're going to get two very different answers, right? Which one is true? Well, it depends on what side of the argument you're on. It depends on who you're allied with. It, 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 a lot of things have to come in, but, but some form of truth is in there somewhere maybe, but they have two different forms of truth based on their perspectives on the same event. So what becomes true in a world where everything is relative, where there is no absolute truth in a postmodern world, what becomes true? The only thing that can become true are the things you cannot argue with. How are you feeling today? Can't argue with that. How are you feeling? Feeling great. No, you're not. Sorry. Yes, I am. You can't disagree with feelings. And so truth in our modern culture is based on feelings. And since our feelings change about things, about history, about anything, since our feelings can change, truth can change with it. If I feel like a banana or a Buddhist or a woman today, you cannot argue because it's just what I feel like. And I don't say that to diminish people who have um, feelings that are difficult, dysmorphic, challenging. Those are real. They're feelings. The challenge is you can't argue with them. And when we are talking about things such as verifiable, historically credible, evidence-based truth, we can't default to feel. We have to, we have to opt out of the postmodern game. Because if we live in the postmodern game, then this is true for you, but it's not for me. And that doesn't work. The Bible won't allow it, actually. The Bible won't allow you to say, that can be true for you, but not for me. Because the Bible makes some really big truth claims, exclusive truth claims, that can't be mutually true for you and not for you. They have to be all in one. Let's start out with one of those. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a pretty big truth claim. Where did we come from? So the Bible would say that there was Eden, and then there was Adam and Eve, and then there was sin, and there was separation from God and man, and it gets bigger from there. In the beginning, God, in the end, God. In between, you kind of flip through the Bible, in between, God takes on flesh, God invades humanity, God saves humanity, God promises to return, restore, God invites us to share in the renewing of creation in his midst. Sort of a massive truth claim if true, would change a lot about who we are and how we behave. If not, this whole thing kind of doesn't make much sense. Like, does it matter if the Bible is truly God's word, divinely inspired and perfectly true, or a nice collection of some really well-intended stories and myths? The difference between those two things are, one, I will stake my eternity, my life, my every breath to it, because if it's true, it changes everything. And the other is like, well, that's cute. Maybe we'll read those around bedtime to our children. So we have to wrestle first with, do we really believe this? But before we even get there, do we really even believe that this matters? 
Because if we're still in a place where it's like, no, it's cool if you don't believe it, it doesn't change anything. You can have your faith, and you can have your faith, and it's fine, it's no big deal. If we say that to people, then we are saying that the Bible isn't true. Because the Bible would say it kind of does really entirely matter. If God's word is reliable and true, then our existence is explained and our destiny is changed. And if not, then we are just getting together to make each other feel better. So I'm going to say that it matters whether it's historically credible. There's too much to cover in kind of laying out the case for this. You can go to a class at a you know, seminary and you can spend six months going through the credible historicity of the Bible. We have uh, 23 minutes. So what we're not going to do is be exhaustive. What I am going to do is try to do a few things. I'm going to talk about genres and how they affect our understanding of truth. And then we're going to do a couple examples of how things that have been discovered, historically real things, are upholding biblical truth. And then we're going to do a little fun thing at the end where we take just a slice of the Bible that just is so boring and factual that no one would ever care to read it, and we're going to see where it leads us. Okay. So first, genres. What are genres? Bible is full of different genres. It's 66 books. This can explain last week. It's 66. There's letters, there's books, there's prophecies. So what is in here? There's letters, there's history, there's poetry, there's prophecy, there's narrative, like it's historical nonfiction, parable, metaphor. So we believe at Covenant Church, we believe the Bible is without error and literally true, even if not all of it is literal. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read our statement of faith. Sometimes we put parts of our statement of faith on the screen because you need to know and understand that I'm not in charge. I'm one of the elders here at the church, but it isn't, this isn't what I believe. This is not my opinion. This is what we believe as a community. And so let's read it. Um, the Bible, this is what we believe about the Bible. We believe the Bible is God's word. It was written by human authors under the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is the supreme source of truth for Christian beliefs and living. Because it is inspired by God, the word of God is inerrant with error in its original autographs and in all that it affirms. There's a lot of scripture. You can look this up. Um, Autographs meaning um, in the first writing of it. If I write a letter and I hand it to Joe, um, and then Joe copies that letter and hands it back, and they copy the letter again and hands it back, the original autograph is the one I wrote to Joe. That's the original autograph. So we believe the inerrancy in the original. Now, could there be a translation thing that takes it from from A to B and, and like a slight twist here and a slight twist there? Maybe. We believe the Bible is inerrant in its original autographs, okay? So we agree that that Scripture is true. This is what we believe as a community. And then we have to say that there is a point to that. So I said, it's literally true, even if not all of it is literal. And some people are literalists in here. You're allowed to be literalist. Some people are very uh, heavy in the poetry and metaphor. They're like, ah, this is sort of metaphorical. You're allowed to do that too. What we believe is the point of it is it's all God-breathed and it's all true. We might disagree on what's literal and what's figurative. That's okay. Here's an example. If I exclaim to you that I'm over the moon about my wife, I'm over the moon for her. Either you know that the point of that is I really love her, or I'm a liar because I'm clearly not over the moon right now. And so if we're going to quibble over that, we're going to have major issues, right? What you get is the point. You're like, well, he's using some poetic, metaphorical language there to say that he really loves her. I get it. It's a true statement, I'm over the moon for her, but it's also not a true statement. It's not literally true of her. I love her deeply. Song of Solomon, you didn't think we're going to go there today, did you? Here we go. Buckle up. Song of Solomon describes a woman's breasts as like gazelles. I'm just going to wait. 
That's poetic, right? We hope so. We hope so. Let's move on. Was the world created in a literal week or a metaphorical week? What is the genre? What are the implications? What's the point? God created. God created. We can disagree on whether he created in a billion millennia or in the blink of an eye. What we can't disagree on is that God created. Scripture is clear. God created. God spoke and the world came into being. The world was formless and void and God spoke and the world came into being. That's true. Science agrees with that too. Science lest you be a scientist. Science agrees that there was a beginning, that we can point to a beginning. So science says, actually, there was a beginning. So when the Bible says, in the beginning, we're not starting off on a bad foot here. We're starting off on science agrees there was a beginning. We just happen to believe the beginning was authored by God. Geological records, since we're on science, geological records support that there was a massive, unprecedented flood in Mesopotamia around the time of Noah's flood. Geological records support that. Now, so did the writers of the age. You go, well, that's geology. I don't know. You could fudge it. This science changes over time. They get different. Okay, well, so did the writers of the age, Gilgamesh, others. They, historians pointed to this massive flood. And so we look at it and we go, well, that's interesting. And so someone will say, did Noah's flood then, I mean, the Bible says it covers the whole earth. Did Noah's flood cover the frozen swamp of Northwest Ohio or did it cover the whole earth as the whole earth was understood to be in their perspective at that time? And my answer is, okay, yeah. You can believe either, and it doesn't affect the point of the story. The story has a point, and the truth of the story is not impacted whether you are a literalist in that or you want to read into some context and figurative language in that. We need to be clear on that because what's essential here is that we're clear on the main truth. The scripture is full of warnings against Christians fighting over things that don't matter, warring over divisive issues, and therefore becoming a house divided that cannot stand because we get so caught up on the things that aren't essential that we lose track of the thing that is essential. And the world outside looks at us and goes, why would I want to have anything to do with those people? They can't even agree on anything. Much less that the point of this thing, the overarching narrative is that God loved us so much that Jesus came that he lived a perfect life, that he died a sacrificial death, that he rose from the dead, that he has eliminated death from us, he has given us new life in eternity, and that's the point. And everything, is, everything in your scripture is pushing towards that point. Every narrative in scripture is nudging us towards that point. Everything in scripture looks at Jesus and says, this is the way. So don't get caught up on the little things. Does it matter? Absolutely. And you can have an opinion, absolutely. I'm not going to fight you on either of them. Can a text be historical and metaphorical? Absolutely. Astronomy agrees. You can do astronomy. I don't know if you knew this. I didn't know this when I went to college. Astronomy, I thought that was like stars. And it turns out it's just math. That's all astronomy is. They tricked me. Because I signed up for astronomy and I was like, this is good. I can like learn stars and stuff. I'll impress girls. I'll be like, look, it's Orion's belt. And then they threw a bunch of formulas at me. I got a D, so that D's get degrees. It was good. Um, then it was all math, all the time, and I was not a real fan of that. But apparently, apparently astronomy is a real thing. Um, so Oxford, not known as a bastion of, of Christian conservatism, Oxford, these Ox Oxford uh, scientists, an astrophysicist and astronomer, calculated the date of the crucifixion of Jesus with science, using evidence from the Bible that there would have been a blood moon 
and an eclipse. And so they can go back and using science, because like, you know, the cosmos kind of run on this weird rhythm that maybe there's a creator. And, and what they are able to do is look back and say, oh yeah, Jesus would have died on April 9th, 30 AD. How do you know that? Well, look, and they draw all these things. And are, could they be wrong? Maybe. But the point is these people aren't invested in Christianity being true. And they can look back with science and go, actually, the, the biblical account checks out. That's interesting. It's corroborating the gospel account. Science agrees that the Bible is historically credible. My point here is to say the Bible is full of different genres, and they all point to the same overarching truth. God created, Jesus died, rose again, salvation is at hand for those who believe. All of these genres point to the same truth. So we get back to the question, is there evidence? Now, you said some science things and some genre things. Is there evidence that the Bible is historically credible? Okay. You've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls found in the 1940s. This is Qumran. These are caves in the side of the, the mountainside there. In those caves, uh, Bedouin shepherds, teenage Bedouin shepherds, um, found these scrolls. Here's a picture of one. It's kind of what they look like. Every Old Testament book except Esther, there were pieces found. They're dated back to the first century, so um, 2,000-year-old scrolls that are still intact, that are still legible, um, you can still see them. They're on display in a museum in Jerusalem. We're going to take a trip to Israel next year if you want to go talk to me. Um, you can just walk up and see them and go, oh. Why do the Dead Sea Scrolls matter? They matter because they establish historical veracity of the text we have. Some people go, well, how do I know? This is like thousands of years old and it's been translated from this language to this language to this language to this language. How do I know this is accurate? When, when people compare the Dead Sea Scrolls from um, the time of Christ, essentially, to modern texts, there was almost no difference. Meaning that not only has God curated the Holy Scriptures, but God has preserved them in such a way that we still can look at our text, at our Scripture, and go, this is still as accurate as it, as it was. It's not been, um, you know, corrupted by history and corrupted by biases and corrupted by translators. It's actually the same as it was in the time of Christ. The same Isaiah that they read, we read. That matters. Because it lends confidence and credibility to the scripture you hold in your hand. You don't have to wonder who translated this for their own agenda. You get to go, this is the same one that Jesus would have read. It establishes this veracity. The texts have minimal changes. There's accuracy over millennia. They're not the only scrolls that have been found, but they are the most complete. If you go to your New Testament, you go, what about my New Testament? Glad you asked. Luke Ken mentioned Luke was a physician, very detail-oriented. Luke's gospel is full of verifiable details. Matthew mentions witnesses by name. Both of these practices, heavily detailed writing and witnesses, like named witnesses, those were both the best practices for establishing historical nonfiction narrative in the day. Why? Because details can easily be refuted. That's not true. That didn't happen. I was there. That's not real. And then that manuscript doesn't go any further. People go, that can't get out. Matthew naming witnesses who have seen things, miracles, resurrections. Matthew names all these people. If those people got word that they were named in something that didn't happen, that they weren't at, they put an end to that, and that goes away. And remember, the people who wrote these things weren't the people in power. These were people who were very much marginalized. For, for it to get out, it had to get past people who had power and went, gosh, well, I can't argue with that. These people wrote historical accounts 
And then they were corroborated by the historians of the day. Josephus is maybe a name you've heard before. There's others like him who were like historians. They wrote first century accounts of Christianity. Just like you and I would write an account of what happened on 9-11, or we just, the facts of the issue were this. And so there's all these bits and pieces about Jesus and the disciples and early Christians and resurrection that's in history books from the day. Establishes a widely accepted truth that Jesus was a verifiable historical man who walked the earth. And then you add that with all of the witnesses to what the gospels say happened in his life and his death and his eventual resurrection, and you go, this is a really hard thing to refute. It offers a deep credibility to the gospel. Now, critics over the years have had many things that they poke at. Critics find these threads, they go, well, this, this thread won't hold, so if you pull that, the whole thing falls apart. Critics said that Moses could not have written the Pentateuch because writing, especially the kind of writing that he did, didn't even exist in the day. And then in 1902, in modern Iran, the Code of Hammurabi was found and disproved that false assumption. And they go, oh, there was pretty sophisticated writing in the time of Moses, so I guess it could have happened. Fine. Then critics questioned that the Bible prominently mentioned the Hittites, this, this tribe, over 40 times. The Hittites... And critics said, there are no Hittites. There's never been any archaeological evidence that anybody named the Hittites ever existed. So the Bible, again, is finding itself to be false. It's creating narratives that don't exist. And then in 1906, the Hittite capital city was discovered in modern Turkey, proving once again that the Bible has been right all along. I read this line. I'm just going to read it to you because I've I've had to read it a few times to realize that um, it's a pretty profound statement. The archaeologist Spade has yet to unearth a single find, a single historical find, that disproves any biblical statement. In fact, quite the opposite is true. There's not an archaeological find that has disproven any part of the Bible yet. And if you've been to Israel, or if you're going to go to Israel, what you will see is that everything forever is an archaeological dig. You cannot build anything without people having years to go in and just go layer after layer after layer, and they find everything. And everything's shaken, and everything's inspected, and everything's categorized, and you can go layer after layer. There's not a single thing that's gone, well, this part of the Bible isn't true. Everything they find goes, this part of the Bible was true. I read an article this morning in the Times of Israel that says they found writings from the time of King David that uphold several of the things that David had said, that until this time, They couldn't have figured out. And these things were found in the 1800s, and we now only have the technology to kind of finish and fill in the writing. And they went, actually, oh, well, this this corroborates a lot of what David's testimony would have been about his life. Interesting. Like every time we find something, it goes, yeah, the Bible was right. Yeah, the Bible's good. So we go to Ebla in northern Syria. I'll put a map on it. You can get a picture of where we are. We have um, the Mediterranean Mediterranean Sea, and then you're going to see Uh, Just to the right of the Mediterranean Sea and up a little bit, you're going to see a little uh, Ebla, E-B-L-A. Okay, so see Aram in red, and then you have Ebla just above that. This is modern-day Syria. You can see Damascus, Jerusalem down below that. So in Ebla, in northern Syria, in the 60s and 70s, there were these uh, excavations, and they found thousands of tablets They didn't even know there was a city there. They start digging. They find these tablets, the tablets of Ebla. So we can go to the next slide, and it has uh, a picture of what these look like. So that's what they walk into as they do some excavating, and there's all these little, you know, squares. And you have a zoomed-in version up there a little bit where you see there's tiny little bits of writing on each of these tablets. 
thousands, 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 tens of thousands of tablets. What they realize is they've uncovered an ancient library of sorts. The court in the city was near there, and so maybe these are the court records of the library, something along those lines. They've dated it uh, to 2300 BC. Why does that matter? Because Abraham lived in the 2100s and Moses lived in the 1500s BC. So this predates Moses by almost a millennia. Okay. This mentions biblical towns that otherwise people had gone, that's not a real place. Sodom and Gomorrah, people for a long time said, that's not a real place. They made it up. It's like a myth of this thing that might have happened. Well, these tablets from Ebla, they mention Sodom and Gomorrah as modern day towns. Creation story is found in there. You know, our library has facts about science and facts about the world around us. They found the creation story in this library in ancient Ebla that just happened to mirror the Genesis story of creation almost a thousand years before Moses. It adds considerable veracity to the biblical details, otherwise would have been lost to history and unprovable. Discovery after discovery continues to show this stuff is real. It's historically credible. Critics said that many of the Old Testament laws were improbable. They were too sophisticated. These weren't real. People didn't talk like this. People didn't write like this. They wouldn't have this many clauses. This is not real. It was a, it was a very common critique. All of the Old Testament Mosaic law was called into question. And then at Ebla, a thousand years pre-Moses, what did they find? complicated case law on these tablets. Case law, like a lawyer would have on all those books. You see the, the lawyer commercial and there's like a thousand books behind them that you know they've never read. Those are, that's case law. That's what that is. So they can look up a case from 1850, from 1916. They can look up the case and use that for the modern case. They found case law at Ebla on tablets that mirrored what showed up in Deuteronomy later. So not only was it sophisticated, but Moses may have been basing some of the way he wrote on what was existing at the time, historically credible Bible. This is stunning support. It's a, I mean, it's a rabbit hole. I'd love, you go down too many rabbit holes on the internet. I wish you didn't go down. This is one I want you to find. I want you to start the YouTube search of the historically credible Bible and just see where it takes you. Let's finish with something fun. I think it's fun. If you don't think it's fun, then come back tomorrow. We'll do it again. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel, he's a priest. I want to convince you to read your Bible. That's kind of the point here. I want to convince you to want to read your Bible. I want to convince you that all of it, the Bible says all of it is designed for your good. All of it is designed to sharpen you. All of it is designed to equip you. I want to show you that truth connects and informs and even inspires. Even truth, we're not really sure why we have to read this part. Ezekiel 1, we'll just read it together. This is the priest, Ezekiel, he writes this. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Cape Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. And you look at that and you go, why do I have to read that? I agree. Seems like a lot of unnecessary detail. Just tell me what you want to tell me, Zeke. Come on, buddy. First, note that he dates everything exactly. He dates everything exactly. Why? Because if this was some sort of historical document, it would need to be credibly able to be refuted. And so he isn't just Zeke. 
hanging out by the palm tree. Here's some stuff I heard from the Lord. He goes, hey, this is where I am. This is how old I was. He names who was there. He's able to be disputed. He timestamps it, which in the ancient world is great authenticity. He says, I'm 30. I'm writing this and I'm 30. I'm a priest. I'm 30. He then tells us by what he says here, we know that it's 593 B.C., now, if, if it had said in your Bible at 593 BC, you read that as a history text. All you need to know is we can be, because all the stuff he mentions, we know it's 593 BC, the fifth month of the fifth year of Jehoiakim's reign. How do we know that? Because there are records of who the reigning king is at the time. Why does this matter? Why do you care? Because it all ties in, because all scripture is God-breathed, and all scripture is useful for your growth and you're pulling into the Lord. So let's take one little snippet of that and ask why it matters. Why do, you, why do we care that he's 30? In his 30th year, do we care? Does it matter? Is it important? Does it tie to anything? He's 30, and he starts writing. He's a priest, and he's 30. Go to Numbers chapter 4, verse 1. So we come over here. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi by their clans and their fathers' houses. From 30 years old up to 50 years old, all who can come on duty to do the work in the tent of meeting. So in, in Numbers 4.3, and then again later in, the later in that chapter in 4.23, what, what the law says is you have to be 30 years old to be a priest doing priestly work. You have to be 30. This is important. You've got to be 30. If you're going to be a priest for God, you have to be 30 years old. There's something about it. I tell my girls, you cannot marry a man until he's 30. Why? It's called extended adolescence, girls. They just, they're not growing like they used to. I'm just kidding, guys. Just. <laughs> Genesis 41, 46. Genesis 41, 46. And he, it was a 30. We're still on this 30. Joseph was, how old was Joseph? Joseph was 30 when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. So Ezekiel was 30, and then it says you've got to be 30 to be a priest. And then Joseph was 30, and then in 2 Samuel it's going to say David was 30 when he began to reign. David was 30, and Joseph was 30. Ezekiel was 30. The priest has to be 30. Okay, fine. Nice little Old Testament nugget. Congratulations, everybody's 30. Like, that matters. How does it connect? Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about... it starts to connect. That Jesus is a historical figure from a real culture with a real context, beholden and fulfilling real laws. Have you ever asked the question, why did Jesus wait till he was 30 to start his ministry? I hear that question a lot. If he's really God, like if he's really God and really man, why would he wait until he's 30 to start his ministry? Like he could have been doing so much good for all those years. Well, Numbers says that when he's 30, he can begin doing his priestly work. Oh. He's 30. Jesus was 30. And then say he was the son of Joseph, and that begins to root him. So Luke, detailed Luke, good old Luke, what did he have? Luke has a genealogy. Luke's genealogy, I'm not going to make you read it, but you, you ever look at your Bible and you see these, this person begat, this person begat, this person begat, this person, and you go, oh my gosh. I don't need to know who begat who. Get out of here. <laughs> Luke shows that Jesus is from a priestly tradition. He roots him 
in a lineage that ties him into a priestly tradition in a cultural and historical context. So this detailed Luke says, I can root him in history, and Luke traces 77 generations, and he traces Jesus back to Adam in lineage. It's a lot of directions you can go from there. Between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy, we've tied Jesus to kingly things, to priestly things, from David to Melchizedek to the Levites. We can tie Jesus to all the things that matter historically in the Scripture. But we're, let's stick with 77. That's interesting. We started with Ezekiel was 30 years old. Now we're talking 77. Why does it matter that there were 77 generations? Well, it's just a number, right? Yes, maybe. 77 generations removed from God creating Adam, I would say, and I think the Scripture would say that Jesus is the true and better Adam. He happens to be descendant. And what came apart in the garden, remember we said in the garden there was sin and there was separation. What came apart in the garden under the watch of Adam is being put back together under the watch of Christ. While we're here, 77, 77, does that come up anywhere else in your gospel? 77. So you just keep following the thread. Where's this going to lead me? Where's this going to lead me? Where does this lead me? Where does 77 happen? Matthew 18, Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I don't say seven times, but 77 times. Like numbers matter. 77 being could be 77, could be 490, depending on how you translate and read. Either way, what is it implying? Infinite. How many times? Well, how about seven being a perfect number, being infinity? How about infinity times infinity? That's how many times. Jesus tells Peter, stop counting. And that's a different sermon for a different day. It's a historical footnote in the book of Ezekiel that says Ezekiel was 30 years old that drives us into why did he need to be 30 years old that drives us to the law, which drives us to Jesus, which drives us to the gospels, which drives us all the way to, I need to forgive somebody today because I was faithful to open my Bible and look that Ezekiel was 30. The Word of God is rooted in a deep and rich history. It is verifiable, scientifically and historically accurate, and now every word drips with meaning. Every word drips with purpose. The Word of God is alive and active, and it is reading you now. Each syllable is constructed to point to a larger truth, to a God who creates, a God who redeems, a God who saves, and God who secures. And so my prayer for you is this. May God grow your confidence in his word and in his son that you might live out your days in a beautiful obedience and establish and know the fullness of blessing that he offers through it. Amen? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your written word. God, we're grateful for uh, Jesus, the Word made flesh, but this written Word that we have access to, Father, pray that we don't take it for granted. God, find us to be a people that are deeply committed to knowing your Word and knowing that every drop, every word, every letter, every syllable has meaning and purpose and invites us into deeper life with you. God, I pray that you would inspire us as a community to be students of your Word, not for the sake of learning or intelligence or knowledge, but for the sake of relationship with you, that we might overflow into a culture, into a city, into a neighborhood that is desperate for real truth in this world. So God, we are grateful for your presence in this place. We're grateful for your ongoing speaking to us through your word. God, we lift up our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.